0: entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum," 11 Lectures, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 6, entitled Perceiving the Etheric World, given in Dornach on the 22nd of April, 1923. In recent days I have been trying to place the human being into the context of the whole universe, showing firstly how we are constituted a physical body, etheric body, or body of formative forces, astral body and the eye itself that passes on from one life on earth to another but then also how these members or aspects of our being each in their own way are connected with the universe thus the human physical body is connected with everything in the world that is physical sensory and earthly in nature this human physical body belongs to the physical sense world When, on the other hand, we inquire into the etheric body or body of formative forces, we have to be aware that it actually belongs to a quite different world, to the one that is itself etheric, and which I described to you as a world that we must feel approaching us out of the far breaths of the cosmos, as opposed to earth forces that spread outward in all directions from the earth, forces of the physical world. Within which we live, we must picture the etheric world issuing from the whole compass of the cosmos and approaching us and the physical forces from an opposite direction. This means that the human being's etheric body is subject to quite different laws from those of the physical body. Then again, when we inquire into the human being's astral body, we find it to be connected with worlds that we do not encounter at all in the cosmos encompassed within the physical or etheric realms in which we live between birth and death. We find instead that we belong in our astral body to a world that we enter between death and a new birth. And with the I, capital, itself, finally, we belong to a world that passes like a flowing current through worlds which, like our world, for instance, are in turn threefold. Our world is threefold, physical, etheric, astral. The world of the eye passes through this world and through other similar threefold worlds. It is, in other words, a far more comprehensive world. It is a world that we must describe, in fact, as the world of the eternal as compared to the temporal world. In studying the human being's capacities of perception and cognition and how these acquaint us with the etheric body or body of formative forces, the astral body and the eye, we enter by turn into very different worlds. If we wish to acquaint ourselves with our etheric body, we have to enter the sphere of active thinking an experience of thinking. Here we need to recognize how the world that surrounds us is different in kind from what we experience within the physical sense world. Things and processes we are familiar with from the physical world appear and behave very differently in these higher realms. In the things and processes of the physical world, we find only the last effects, if you like, of agencies and activities issuing from higher worlds. In a sense, therefore, we see a more original and archetypal aspect of these things than we find within the physical world. Dwelling in the physical world, we initially possess the world well known to the ordinary mind, the world in which we are surrounded by the three kingdoms of nature and our own human nature. But when we raise ourselves to the powers of perception, which I have called imaginative perception in my books that reveal to us our own etheric body or body of formative forces, then we enter the etheric world. And when we have strengthened ourselves to the point of inner illumination, so that we dwell within what I call the second human being within us, in the body of formative forces, then we also enter the world revealed to us, at least in pictures initially, as the world of the angeloi, archangeloi, and Archai. In breaking through into the sphere where we can perceive the etheric body or body of formative forces, revelations are granted us within its flowing world of images of beings belonging to the third hierarchy of Angeloi, Arch Angeloi, and Archai. Here, therefore, we are surrounded by beings who do not surround us in the physical sense world. The way in which these beings surround us manifests in qualities which we can say our senses also give us here in the sense world. But here in the sense world, colors, for instance, are qualities that adhere to the surfaces of things or appear in a purely physical configuration such as the rainbow. Tones too appear to us here in their connection with things of the physical sense world. Heat and cold, likewise, issue from sources of a physical sensory nature. But if we observe this world, in which the third hierarchy appears to us, we no longer have colors that adhere to things, tones that resound from things, and so on. But instead the flowing colors, the reverberating tones, the resonance of heat and cold, pour not through space any more but within time. A quality of color does not attach to the surface of things, but instead it surges and fluctuates. At the same time, the powers enabling us to transpose ourselves into these worlds teach us that just as color in the material world conceals a material property, so within a flowing cloud of color, a streaming color organism, as we perceive it in this world, a quality of spirit and soul holds sway that belongs to the third hierarchy. At the moment, therefore, when the life tableau that I described appears before you, revealing vividly as in an instant everything we have experienced since birth, the third hierarchy is alive within these colors, tones and so on that are now liberated from matter and appear to us within this stream of our own experiences in life. And when, through the power of our capacity of perception, we raise ourselves to a point where we can survey our own astral body, thus perceiving what existed of us before we descended to earthly existence, and what we will again carry with us when we pass through the gate of death, we can discern a further world, one we do not find in the ether of the cosmos, but that exists only behind the gateway of birth and death. We here enter a further world, the world of the astral. All this does not coincide exactly with what I described in my book titled Theosophy, where things are characterized from a different perspective. But in the same way that we encounter the third hierarchy, when we organize ourselves upward to our body of formative forces, in this further world, in which our astral body becomes visible for us, we encounter the second hierarchy, that of exousiae, curiatites, dynamis. And this second hierarchy no longer manifests, if we perceive it truly, in flowing colors and streaming tones, but as various meanings that are revealed and proclaimed to us from the Logos that imbues the world. This speaks to us. We have to use customary words to give some hint or sense of how we can relate to these worlds once we have acquired the relevant powers of perception. And then these words no longer have the same meaning as they do in the sensory world. Yet from them we can glean something concerning this relationship to higher worlds. Thus we can say that inner living thinking becomes a kind of organ of touch for the etheric world. With this inner living thinking we touch into this flowing world of colors, and so on. We should not imagine that the color red that we see with our senses is the same as the red quality we now perceive. This is not a color attaching to things that we see with our eyes, but an apprehension and contact with red, yellow, and so on. We touch into them, as it were. We touch into tones. And so we can say that in the etheric world, living thinking becomes an encounter, a contact, with what lives in the world of the third hierarchy, if we then enter the world to which, in a sense, our own astral body belongs, we can no longer say that we merely touch it or touch into it. We must regard this world as the manifestation of the beings of the second hierarchy. We must see each particular expression of it as a part and aspect of the cosmic logos. Through the deep silence we engender in ourselves the speech of spirit beings emerges. Thus after touch, contact, at the first level comes speech, communication. And when, in the way I suggested yesterday, we wrestle our way through to an experience of the I capital that passes from one life to the next, and in the intervening periods, passes through those other modes of life between death and rebirth, then we enter a world, that is the world of spirit itself, the higher world of spirit. In this world we gain a very particular relationship to our true I. The I or ego we experience here within earth existence, between birth and death, is, after all, bound up with our physical corporeality. It is perceptible for us as long as we experience ourselves within physical corporeality and we are, in a certain fashion, compelled to become selfless when we rise into the ether world and the astral world. Here we have at most only something like a memory of this earthly ego. But we then find the true I as it passes from one life on earth to the next, as I said. We discern this true I initially as a being quite separate from us. We say to ourselves, Here I stand in this earthly life between birth and death and look back through the portion of etheric world that appears to me, back to my earthly birth. But then my gaze looks still further back into worlds, far regions that really only have temporal existence, and where, to speak of space, would actually make no sense. I gain a broad vision of the world, with all it contains, as it surrounds us between death and a new birth. As I gaze through the ether, through the world of the third hierarchy, as I gaze through the astral realm, in which I lived between death and my latest birth, as in a supersensible world of the revelation of the Logos, a world revealing itself through a cosmic speech, as I gaze through all this, I ultimately look upon a being far distant from me upon the content of my previous life on earth. Initially this appears to me thus. I stand here in earthly life, with my present ghost-like eye, and then I look far back through all I just described to the content of my previous life on earth. But at the same time I see how the eye, winding itself free, has passed through the worlds through which I have been gazing, reaching, reaching, my present earthly life. To begin with, I do really see my true eye as a distant foreign being, and I recognize myself again in this being that is, as it were, an alien one to me. In this sentence every word should really be taken with great intensity, for each word in it is of quite special importance. It is part and parcel of the whole experience, that we wrestle our way forward from perception of our own eye, as something initially alien to us, to the point of recognizing that what first appeared foreign to us is what we ourselves actually are. It appears to you as if another being altogether lived in the distant past, but you are this being yourself and then we become aware how this self has streamed in from a previous life on earth into this present life, and in this present earthly life is in some respects covered over and concealed. It would only emerge and appear if all that occurs between falling asleep and waking up again were to unfold before the human soul. Within it there weaves and lives on what has streamed from our former earthly life through the astral and etheric world until it reaches us. You see, a world of earthly contradictions and heavenly concordances lie in this labor of recognition, earthly contradictions of a kind that mean that everything we initially possess here in daily life on earth cannot basically come near our own true eye. Within this earthly eye live, really, only the first rudiments of love. But the fact that this power of love shines into earthly life lends life a shimmer and brilliance. But this love must be intensified and enhanced. This love must be enhanced so that we become able to perceive the etheric world and the astral world, and so that we can overcome what lives in us as our ego, as egoism as the opposite of love, and in life as the opposite of love makes it possible for us to experience ourselves as our own ego within earthly life. Love must grow so strong that we learn to overlook this earthly ego, to forget it, no longer to gaze upon it with such regard. Love means merging our own being in the other. This must happen so strongly that we no longer esteem our own ego, our own I, as it lives in our earthly body. Then we encounter the contradictory truth that it is precisely through selflessness, through the highest capacity of love, that we reach our own true I, which then shines toward us from the far distances of past eras. We have to lose our earthly ego to gain perception of our true I. And if we cannot develop this devotional surrender, we cannot approach our true I. You can see it like this. The true I does not wish to be sought. Its appearance and emergence will not be dictated. It hides itself when it is sought, for it will only be found in love. And love is the devotion of our own being to another being. This is why the true I must be found as if it were a being who is other, who is not us. And the moment we gain perception, vision of our own true eye, at the same time we apprehend what henceforth lives in a further world, in the actual world of spirit. We encounter the beings of the first hierarchy, seraphim, cherubim, thrones. And just as we there rediscover our eye of which we possess only a reflection here in earthly life. So we discover the true spirit form of the whole world, of our earthly surroundings. We must also lose the earthly world to gain this perception, to find at one and the same time the original world it derives from, together with our true eye. And so we can say that what reveals itself in the spirit world is rediscovery, touch, speech, rediscovery and recognition, but of something we previously knew only as a reflection, an image. In this way, as we experience our own full human nature and perceive our own being, we live our way into the totality of the universe. A full account of the different levels of the human being as physical body, etheric body, astral body and I is only really given if we show at the same time how these separate aspects are connected with corresponding worlds of the universe. What I have just described has to be well understood if we are to be clear what underlies this enumeration of the four members of human nature. It becomes fully apparent here that we not only need to have different thoughts if we are to raise ourselves to an understanding of the world of spirit, but must also think in a different way. We must lead our whole way of thinking, which is really only a dead picturing within merely physical sense perception, into a living apprehension. And here we can experience something very particular arising from modern culture, which shows us the obstacles that need to be overcome if anthroposophy is to imbue and inform the human soul. When my book titled Occult Science appeared, a well-known modern philosopher took it to task. He first read the chapter where I described the division of human nature into physical body, etheric body, astral body, and I, and so on. Many ordinary people with sound common sense also read occult science and were able to make something of it because healthy common sense is sufficient to follow what it describes, in the same way that you can understand a painting without needing to be a painter yourself. But a renowned philosopher may well have greater problems in understanding than an ordinary person. Coming upon these distinctions between physical, etheric, astral and eye, he was stumped. What on earth did this mean? The physical body was clear enough, of course, and perhaps the etheric body, since he could understand there being a finer kind of materiality than the denser substances of the body, yet still materiality, nevertheless. However, he thought this distinction between denser and finer materiality was somewhat arbitrary Then the astral body. Well, this famous philosopher had, of course, heard of the soul, but astral body? What was that? The soul encompasses the faculties of thinking, feeling, and will, which, he stated, are functions of the physical body. And so, if we have understood the physical body, then we have also grasped thinking, feeling, and will. And as to the I, well, that is just an aggregation of everything else. And now let us see how this renowned philosopher responded critically to the book. He regarded what he found in occult science roughly in terms you might apply to an armchair. He said that an armchair can also be divided into legs, the seat, and the backrest and armrests, three parts, therefore. And then he proceeded to divide the human being, too, as one might an armchair. He thought this a rather good way of considering the human being but did not think it was anything particularly new, just another way of disassembling the human being into parts. Scientists might get on better. They would not make do with mere intellectual classifications. You see, when chemists consider water, they analyze it into hydrogen and oxygen. The scientist will not stop at a merely abstract classification of water into two parts knowing that hydrogen will not necessarily only be bound up with oxygen, as in water, but can also be bound with something quite different, such as chlorine, in the case of hydrochloric acid. Thus, the hydrogen in water is not just a portion, a part of water, but when separate from water, it can form different combinations. And the oxygen, too, if separate from water, can be combined, can bind with other substances for example, with calcium to form calcium oxide. Thus, hydrogen can form hydrochloric acid with chlorine, and oxygen can form calcium oxide with calcium. So it is no longer possible to classify water in a merely abstract way, as one might an armchair. With a human being, we stand at a still higher level. A mere classification into physical body, etheric body, astral body, and I is not adequate here, but we have to recognize that the physical body belongs to the earth, and when a person passes through the gate of death and leaves his physical corpse behind, this passes back to the earth while the etheric body rises into the ether, but the astral body separates from both and enters worlds where the second hierarchy dwells. And the eye in turn, also belongs to a different world, where the first hierarchy dwells. These four levels, are, or aspects, are not mere classifications, but each of them belongs to quite distinct and different spheres of the cosmos. Thus the classification into four parts points to the complex nature of the human being and stands at a much higher level than is required for analysis of an armchair, or then also water. This points us to a significant obstacle in modern academic discourse. If he had turned to chemistry, the renowned philosopher could have discovered that while abstract classifications may work for an armchair, they don't apply to water any longer. But the philosophy of this supposed philosopher could not extend beyond the armchair, even as far as water. It could not carry him from a grasp of mundanities, which can be conceived in abstract ideas, to science. And science, in turn, cannot extend itself into philosophy. Thus chemists today do not include philosophical considerations of any kind in their inquiries. And so, philosophy, which, from this perspective, we might call a doctrine of armchairs, as yet finds no place for scientific thinking. In chemistry, in science, in turn, there is no place for philosophy. And therefore in the academic world, especially the conditions that would allow people to penetrate to the deeper inner truth of the universe and its connection with the human being, simply do not exist. This man who offered a critique of my book first sent me his essay in manuscript form, But what was I to make of it? It is impossible to enter into any kind of debate with someone like this, for he lacks even the most rudimentary foundations for discussion. I let the essay lie, and later I discovered it again in published form, with all the errors and nonsense, really, that was contained in this armchair philosophy. These are the kinds of hindrances that anthroposophy encounters, and we have to acknowledge the chasm that lies here between Anthroposophy and those who often present their critiques of it. To begin with, at least, there is not the slightest chance that we can meet with understanding from academic quarters. This well-known philosopher does admit certain things that are reminiscent of the customary ideas of modern culture. For instance, he acknowledges that there was once a place called Atlantis, a continent between Europe and America, where the ancient Atlanteans lived, precursors of humanity. In this essay he wrote, you can find the following question, though not expressed quite as I put it here. Today, when we do have proper fields of physiology and psychology, how does someone still manage to classify the human being in this way? Of course, anthroposophy does not classify the human being like an armchair but this man thinks that we do. He is a conscientious philosopher in his own way, and he wonders, questions, how we can have arrived at such a classification. He regards it as very primitive compared with the glories of modern philosophy. Now, modern philosophers do not have much access to the truth despite thinking that they do. Two days ago I described to those who kindly attended my course for teachers how we can regard what is nowadays called psychoanalysis. I'll repeat here what I said about it. On the one hand, this psychoanalysis has emerged from an amateur understanding of physiology, which cannot get beyond the psyche and rise to the spirit, but instead remains below with the body. On the other hand, it proceeds also From a half baked grasp of psychology. These two elements cannot combine. And this means that people seek grotesque connections between the half baked attempts in psychology and the half baked attempts in physiology. This dilettantism is huge in both cases, equally so in both. Dilettantism in psychology plays as much part amongst psychiatrists as half baked physiology. But if both are equally severe and combined together, this multiplies the problem and the ignorance. Then we get dilettantism squared. Thus psychoanalysis as a discipline multiplies half-baked ideas in the other two fields. The renowned philosopher I have been speaking of was unable to understand how someone can be so primitive in outlook today as to divide the human being into four portions in the same way that you can identify three parts of an armchair. He seemed baffled by this. He therefore formed the hypothesis that I was a resurrected Atlantean. This is rather inventive of him, it seems to me, especially for an armchair philosopher. But all these things demonstrate that if we wish to truly cultivate anthroposophy, there are things we must resolve to overcome. One of these things, for instance involves learning to discern soul and spirit directly, and then speaking of soul and spirit outside and beyond the physical. We should not speak of soul and spirit through any deductive process, but by virtue of observing their reality. There are people today who can no longer do other than allow the soul's existence as an inner need, and yet they say that we have to deduce the soul from its actions within the physical. As I said, these lectures will be to some degree a repetition of what well-versed anthroposophists have heard before. I am repeating many things you already know. For instance, that there are today natural philosophers who cite this instance. The Venus flytrap has curiously shaped leaves and flowers. When an insect comes near to it, it opens. The Venus flytrap catches this insect and consumes it. And if we want to deduce soul from such outward behavior, we might say that this plant must have a soul. But in this case I can cite another example of something that must assuredly have a soul. There is a little instrument, man-made. You put a piece of bacon in it and it has a trap that falls when a mouse comes near, attracted by the bacon. When the trap falls, this is just like the Venus flytrap and so we might just as well assume the mouse trap has a soul too in the same way that a certain natural philosopher ascribes soul to this plant but deductions cannot be made from external characteristics or behaviour in this way we have to recognise that in this domain we encounter something that goes far beyond ideas of ordinary evidence or refutation if from this truly spiritual perspective we acquaint ourselves with human nature, we learn what it is that comes to expression as physical characteristics in the human being. In earthly life, these are a full imprint or reflection of our spiritual being. In the same way that you find the imprint of a signet in sealing wax, so in the human physical body you find everywhere the imprint of the human being's sole spiritual nature. THE NATURE OF HUMAN SOUL AND SPIRIT CAN EVERYWHERE BE DEMONSTRATED IN THE BRAIN'S CONVOLUTIONS. IF YOU WISH TO DULL YOURSELF TO THE WORLD OF SPIRIT, YOU CAN SAY THAT EVERYTHING IS PHYSICAL. IF YOU WANT TO BE A MATERIALIST, YOU CAN BE. BUT IF NOT, THERE IS NO POINT IN HAMMERING ON ABOUT EVIDENCE OR REFUTATION OF THE ORDINARY KINDS, AS THESE COMMONLY FIGURE IN THE WORLD. BUT YOU MUST SEEK SPIRIT must learn to perceive it as something autonomous in nature. Then you will no longer deny that the imprint in a seal was caused by a signet. The materialist is saying really that the signet does not actually exist, but that everything that exists emerged from the sealing wax. He can keep saying that everything appears in the sealing wax by itself, even a whole person. Josef Müller here, for instance... One can be a materialist if one is unable to find in the powers of one's soul in the self-apprehension of the soul and spirit a point of departure for the path into spirit-soul, into the archetypal realm. Coarse proofs achieve nothing, for you can prove materialism to be true as long as your proofs are founded in the physical world only. By contrast, It is an inner human deed to find our way from the physical into the spiritual realm, rather than to seek abstract proofs. We only come to true anthroposophy through an inner human deed which actively cultivates and furthers our perception. All disputation about proof is useless, for those who cite only evidence drawn from the physical sense world consider themselves fully justified and it is impossible to refute the proofs of those who cannot find the beginning of the path into the world of spirit by the original power of their intrinsic humanity. We have to recognize this. We have to acknowledge that it is a matter of human freedom to raise ourselves from the physical into the spirit, that unfree proofs do not achieve this, but that only deeds of inner conscious human experience Can raise us to worlds of spirit. If we truly feel this inwardly, only then do we possess what is necessary for understanding in the right way how anthroposophy relates to merely physical modes of perception. But this is essential in our era. We cannot demand of a philosophy whose analysis applies only to chairs that it truly comprehends matters worthy of our human dignity. Humanity today needs something that will lead human beings to the real nature of the human being, not merely to its imprint. This imprint presents to our eyes everything that is contained as archetype in a person's spirit being. But it does not give us an experience of this. We have to experience ourselves as beings of spirit soul. And then we will also find the world to be a being of soul and spirit. For this reason every path of knowledge basically involves perceiving ourselves as an image of true human nature, of what is truly human. If we enhance our capacity of love to such a degree that our own eye appears to us, to begin with, as something separate and foreign to us, which we only begin to recognize, and If we raise ourselves to recognize the earthly world in the surrounding cosmos, then we are no longer caught up in an abstract, but in a living process of perception and cognition. And in this living process of perception, the world reveals itself to us through our own being, and our own human being is revealed in our experience of the outer world. Then we truly become beings who rediscover themselves in the whole universe For as we come to know ourselves, we come to know the world. And as we come to know the world, we come to know ourselves. In this interplay between world and human being is revealed what then connects us with the Divine Spirit, what inwardly warms us through and illumines us with the religious tenor of all true higher knowledge. If ultimately the serious endeavor of inquiry culminates in religious experience, then the luster of religion is lent to our knowledge, and the transparency of perception is raised to the realm where faith becomes knowledge through the power of inquiry. And then in our inquiring passage to the world, we find the world in the human being, the human being in the world. Here world and human being are united in an all-encompassing, cosmic, spiritual and divine nature in which we discover ourselves and the world, and only thereby ascend to our true and authentic human dignity, which can then pass over into our religious and moral ethos, rendering us full human beings. In the ether world, through living thinking, touch... In the astral world, through deep silence, speech. In the spirit world, recognition. The end of Lecture 6